I might come across as a very level-headed person, but I'm absolutely furious. I'm, I'm receiving all of anger inside about all of this. You could support us more because we're helping you. Like That's what I felt like during the whole pandemic with Shielding. We're helping you. The disabled and the vulnerable are helping you when they lock themselves away. Hello and welcome to The Way We Roll with me, Simon Minty. And me, Phil Friend. Restrictions around COVID are being lifted. Here in the UK, the government has determined we are on the road to freedom and mask wearing can be relaxed and we can all meet again. This is with a backdrop of numbers and positive cases having, haven't reduced completely. Not everyone is vaccinated and the variant Omicron arrived less than two months ago. Still, for many, this is good news. After two years of restrictions, life can finally get back to something like normal. And all the good things we've learned will remain, of course, as we head into what will be the, sorry, new normal. However, there are a group of people who aren't so pleased. The people who are immunocompromised, and that is upwards of half a million in the UK, and 3.7 million people, if you include people clinically extremely vulnerable, This is a very worrying time. Firstly, they have a greater risk in catching COVID. They are also more likely to go to the hospital with COVID-19, and they're more likely to be admitted to ICU and at an increased risk of death and dying as a result of the virus. Uh, If that's not enough, are we heading into a, a sort of twin track society? Those who are vaccinated have regular immunity or indeed just don't care. They get out and about and those for whom the vaccine has no impact are left at greater risk. So they can't mix and they may have to stay at home. But how do we balance this? Do the 50 million people stay in so that the 4 million stay safe? What about the mental health of everyone under restrictions? And what about the economy? Regular listener Sarah Baxter dropped us a line and suggested we explore the issue of people who are immunocompromised now that restrictions are being lifted. We have Sarah with us. Hi there, Sarah. Hello, I'm really happy to be here today. And we also have comedian and actor Gareth Berliner, and he's with us too. Hi, Gareth. Hi, guys. Great to be here today. Later on, we'll be hearing from a few more of you who have actually sent us audio clips. So thank you for that. now, first off, Sarah, uh, how this is very hard to encapsulate in a, 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 an answer, but how have the last two years been for you because of COVID and, and your condition? Well, it's been a funny two years, hasn't it, really? Um, it's been quite extraordinary. I would say that, I mean, right from the beginning, I sort of felt that having a chronic illness kind of prepared me for it because having a chronic illness, a variable condition, I was used to. Um, having periods of my life when I was on my own and we stay and and used to that oh god I really did want to go out today but I can't I'm quite a resourceful you know self-sufficient resilient sort of a person all all of that born by having like a chronic illness for the last like you know 35 years so I was ready and I think more ready than some of my dare I say normal friends were because they seemed to take the isolation um, much harder, whereas I was able to sort of step through it, knowing that it was the safest thing for me to do. So it's been, you know, up and down. It's I'm not all sunshine and roses about it. It's been really difficult for lots of people, myself included. But um, you know, I've got through. 
it's a common thing we've heard in this sort of you're a bit more prepared than everyone you're nodding gareth is this uh, the last two years for you yeah i mean i can i can totally echo a lot of what sarah said and it certainly feels like it's been a roller coaster because i've had uh, uh, moments where i worked i worked overseas for a period of kind of the last two years or about three months and because i was working within kind of the television industry there was constant testing and i was working in a country where you needed a COVID pass to get into a venue. And I don't fully know where I where I stand on exactly my conviction on how people should behave with regard to these matters. I certainly know I felt incredibly safe, not in the UK, uh, under a different rule of law. But I recognise people's choice, you know, choice. So it's, I feel I've I felt very compromised, not just immunocompromised over the last two years. Was that, Gareth, because the rules were clear and enforced and people were, in quotes, going along with that, obeying it and so on? Was that In France? Yeah. Well, was, well you were in France, right? Okay. Yeah, I, I mean, but they still had this, you know, you still had anti-vaxxers in France and you had still had people who objected to the law. Um, just for me, it meant I had a, a greater level of feeling safe. Okay. okay. I think that's the, the problem here is that I feel like we, the disabled, vulnerable, immunocompromised, are being asked mostly to make the sacrifice for the good of everybody else. Right. Rather than the everybody making a bit of a sacrifice to allow it more inclusive. Well, yeah, being a community, but you know the the, the social model of of disability would argue that, that that's the same thing. If society looked around and went, well, how can we make everything around here much safer because of COVID for disabled people in particular? Um, you know, we might be in a better position then. So Sarah's point about mask wearing and so on, if if um people wore masks routinely, like they do in many other countries, particularly Asia, I think, um, that would be good for all of us. It wouldn't be seen then as a, as a, a sacrifice because everybody would be doing it. Yeah, okay. Can I add to that? I mean, uh, Sarah, you mentioned a couple of times, and I hate to do this, but it, um, in terms of your condition, what might it be and what sort of precautions did you take, particularly during the height of it? Um, so I have multiple sclerosis and I am on a, um, a drug which suppresses my immune system and um, oh, it suppresses the same part of the immune system that would form, you know, go into battle for me against COVID. So it was like, a, oh, like, oh of course it does. Oh, you know, just my luck. Mm-hmm. And really um, continuing to take that drug has meant I've had to make a decision between um you know, my safety in terms of COVID versus the chance of me, what, what would happen if I came off this drug to be more resilient to COVID? What would that mean in terms of disability progression? So I've had to take a risk-based approach to this. And I've always felt that my safety, um, whether that be from disability progression or COVID is my like responsibility. So I will, you know, wear a mask. I will, I wear it on the bus. I wear it I wear it in a shop, I wear it on the train. Um, even when I don't need to, I, I wear it in, yeah, I just wear it. When I'm not, when if I'm not breathing fresh air outside, I will wear the mask. And that is a choice I will make for myself for, for a long time. Um, but I do realise there's kind of this, 
So the consequence of me taking this immunosuppressant for my long-term health has meant that I've, I'm experiencing this kind of new sort of, um, it, it's, like, it's almost like a new disability in that I'm now excluded more from spaces, um, which is, and I think particularly for me, the workspace. So although I'm under no pressure from my employer to return to work, we've all worked remotely. We've been very lucky to be able to do that. And my team mostly, they're all over the country anyway, so there's not a question that I need to return to, on, get on a train for an hour and go from Essex into the city. It's more, you know, how am I excluded in terms of my career? All those sort of, you know, they call them the water cooler conversations you have with people. So really my, my precautions that I took was just people avoidance. You know, I live by myself. So there's no other humans in here or biohazards. So it's just, it's just me. And, I, and I've also, this is going to sound awful, but I've avoided children and young people because um, they have tended to be the not vaccinated. Although I don't, I don't even know if vaccines are that important anymore because, you know, we all know in terms of the numbers that COVID can resist them. So I feel that testing and is perhaps more has swung to be more important now. What intrigued me was you're living on, on your own, so therefore the family kind of stuff isn't so applying to you. What about you, Gareth? Because you have a partner. Mm. What's the impact been on your f- friends and family in relation to you having to be the person you're being because of COVID? Well, obviously, uh, well, not obviously, but uh, my, my family are down in Brighton. Uh, most of the rest of my family, my brother and his uh, kids and my parents. So we've seen them far less uh, than we might have otherwise seen them. My parents are elderly as well, so there's that concern that they have their own vulnerabilities. It's really funny, like the works, but I mean, it's really, it's pretty much caused me to do an about turn on, on where my career's been at prior to the two years because I feel like uh, the TV and film industry right now is a safer place for me, just because they're, you know, they can't get insurance for a production now because of the risk of COVID without everyone testing every week and that becoming part of the budget. So it's actually in my interest. Um, if I'm going to work at all and that's going to be outside and, and in, in an industry, that's where I feel safer, whereas the comedy circuit, it's been a really b- a battle for me with with my community in a way and even an audience like for years i've never felt i've never known how my audience as a group thinks or feels about anything in politics and i've been quite happy to perform for them but the pandemic has brought about me, in me some anger at some attitudes in public and now I don't know if I want to go into a club that doesn't care about me to get all the acts tested before a gig in the same way the industry, the film and TV industry might. And I don't know if I want to perform to an audience where some of them don't believe in vaccines, believe that that vulnerable and disabled people should just lock themselves up and deal with it themselves and get on with it. So it's really, for me, it's it's brought a lot, uh, a lot of, of, with regard to career and, and work changes. 
And what just quickly, what's the impairment issue for you then? Sarah was talking about MS. What so so um, I'm immunocompromised. I have something called Crohn's disease. And then I have various other conditions as a result of the Crohn's. But then I also have um, something called a Hickman line uh, in my chest. And that's a point of entry that puts me at risk of sepsis, which again, immunocompromised. I mean, for me, I felt like my greatest risk during the pandemic was when we were at the height of deaths and ICUs, I would have been left to die. And I kind of know that. Mm. And, and so that's when my wife and myself were most afraid of me getting anything or being near anyone. Um, because I, you know, if you could choose between Gareth, who's at risk, um, and he's married and he's got no kids, and the guy to my right who's married and has got four kids and maybe he's got a grandkid, you know, I just know how I think moral choices are made. I mean, to, I mean, to Gareth's point, my God, did I carry a lot of fear with me? And I, I had a, I packed a bag, like a go bag. Like if I had to go to hospital, I'm going to need all these things. Um, you know, um, medical bits and bobs. And, and um, I also wrote a letter, which I tucked in the bag, and it was for a doctor so that they, if I was ventilated, they could, uh, and I had a picture, so they could read about me. And I, and I said, you know, um, it was about, I felt I needed to prove that I'd, I lived a life of purpose. And just because I was um, living by myself and don't have children, I was still worth saving. And I showed that letter a long time later to my friend who's a consultant in an A&E. And he cried. He, my consultant friend cried because he just said, I can't believe you wrote that. And I thought, I thought I had to, to make people know who I was and that I was worth it because we are, we are, we are vulnerable. And if you have to make choices, who do you choose? And that, and I thought doctors might be pushed, pushed to make those choices when there weren't enough, when there weren't enough ventilators in the country. It's this, we're vulnerable, but we're not, but we're also valuable. Exactly. I, I didn't, I wanted someone who didn't know me to see that I was valued. Yeah. yeah, I was going to say the early days. Um, do you remember? There's a lot of people, particularly with learning difficulties, were asked to sign "Do Not Resuscitate" oh. notices. There was a you, you've taken me right back to the beginning, mm. and there was almost value judgments. There was a big discussion about what advice doctors would be given in terms of the body and its value. Goodness me! I mean, here's a thinking of it from a medical point of view. These are really difficult decisions to make at that point isn't it as gareth was saying at the height of it when everything was up in the air and nobody to be fair nobody quite knew what was going on everyone was charging about from pillar to post trying to make sense of everything uh, disabled people are then viewed as less valuable than other groups and you know the one advantage gareth had over all of us is kirana who is his wife now if i wanted someone to go into me, <laughs> i would get kirana any day of the week she's <laughs> awesome but i remember speaking to both of you early doors and that um both of your lives i mean she just had to stop everything because otherwise you, you two couldn't yeah, yeah. i mean it was yeah uh, full on yeah i mean she had to be careful for my sake totally um and uh, we were going a little bit mad in lockdown. I mean, I, th I don't know, I don't know, Sarah, where you've been at with regards to choices. I mean, my choices have gone up and down between, you know, like I have gone out in public. I have gone out and eaten to a restaurant. I've had to make choices on my risk. Certainly 
those choices have got a little bit easier than they were when we're talking about ICUs being full. So I feel like I've been afforded treats socially um, to myself that I couldn't have made a year ago or more. Yeah, I am. I mean, I know that I have to emerge into society because um, for, for myself and society's sake, I've got a lot to give. Yeah. And um, so I decided I'd, I'd throw myself into the deep end and I'd start an acting class in my local theatre. And I turned up the first day with my mask and I was in a room with like over 30 people and I lasted like two minutes. I was like, I just can't do it. Um, and uh, I spoke to the organisers and they said, oh, we're so sorry, you've been oversubscribed, but next week it'll be better, there'll be fewer people. So I did go back. And I mean, that's been a massive game changer for me because it's a safe space. Theatre is very inclusive. Um, I met a lot of friends. We've continued on into the next term. And the friends that I have met do um, a happy do lateral flow test. They tell me we've done our flow test, Sarah. And then the teacher lets me work with those people because I know they are safe. But I do feel I've had to split people that I know into safe, not Mm. safe. And that's how I've had to sort of step through some choices. So I am starting to unlock myself, um, but in a very measured way and um, with the help of people like around me when, when you're honest. And I did, I caught a train the other day and it was a, a young chap and he got on, he didn't have, a, I had my mask on. He did not have his mask on. And I said, oh, I'm sorry, do you have a mask? Because he was booked next to me. And he said, oh, I'm really sorry, I'm, I'm exempt. And I'm like, oh, okay. And I said, oh, it's just I'm on immunosuppressant, so I'm just a bit worried. And he said, oh, no, I've got a mask. I will wear it if you want me to. So he put his mask on. Um, and then we got chatting. He was a lovely guy, absolutely lovely, worked in healthcare, was triple jabbed, they said. Um, and then, but he started to get a bit breathless. I said, look, just take the mask off. You know, I've had four jabs now. You said you've had three. Let's not, I'm not going to be like, just, just take your mask off because I, I don't want to be that person that you're you're experiencing discomfort now in keeping me safe and and then he you know took his mask off and everyone's fine you know just it was but it was about having that conversation with him thank and you for listening to the way we roll that, with simon minty you know, and phil friend lady if you enjoy the show off, you know, don't forget to was, subscribe was, rate and share fine. but it's that way you have to step through i think by being honest that's amazing, Sarah. I mean, I, I what's the word? Well, probably just for the courage, because you know, you never know what response you're going to get to that. And um, but I love the fact that both of you navigated it. Um, you, you've alluded to uh, my next question. Um, um, maybe start with you, Gareth. Right here and now, as the restrictions are changing. Are you feeling supported? What are your thoughts about the next year or two? Are you feeling you could get left behind here, for want of a better phrase? Um, I I feel um, like I've just had COVID. I had COVID, yeah. Um, And it was Omicron. I know it was Omicron because I think I would have had a much harder time if it had been Delta. Um, And I'm triple jabbed and boosted. Uh, And actually... Initially, I didn't get it from Kirina. She she got it. She was on an acting job and someone there got it. Um, but she actually, the, the night before, I guess, she began shedding viral load or whatever, she told me not to come to bed. She just had a feeling. And I didn't. So I never got it. And then I got it from a close contact outside 
you know, of our home. I went to two places. I went to the gym because I'm trying to get fit, but I wear a mask. And I went to the theatre socially distanced wearing a mask. And I still picked it up from there. I'm in this really weird precipice at the moment where I feel a level of comp of cockiness almost or, or a little bit of a slight superpower briefly, which I, I realize I'm recognize I'm a bit naive to, to make that assumption. I think I'm more worried uh, as someone who's vulnerable, my greater worries are when the hospitals are chock full. Do either of you see your working environments or the way that you work changing? Do you think your, Sarah, let me ask you first, do you think your future looks like you're going to be working from home all the time? Or do you see a future where you will be able to go back? Oh, no, I definitely think I'm going to be working from home the whole time. After after the first lockdown back in, whenever was that? Was it 2020? I can't even remember. Yeah, yeah. I took all my work clothes to the charity shop and donated them and said, I'm never going back. Um, uh, and I'm happy to work from home. Um, if I do need to go into work, because we have a whole point in our team, we say we, we, if we're going to travel, it has to be for purpose because we all, we're all very committed to our carbon pledges. <laughs> so... So if I did need to go to work, I would ask if I could work, if I could travel off peak to arrive later. I would ask if I could stay overnight in a hotel so I could then travel off peak the next day. And I and they'd be really flexible with that, I think. I think they'd be very supportive of that. I think my worry is of what if I have to go into a building that I don't know? So I would need to sort of have someone say, Well, you're going to be in this building today. And but we're going to be in this meeting room and it's this size and this is how it'll be set up. I, I need more confidence around the space to know what it is that I'm stepping through um, and I would hope I mean my my office is currently on the 16th floor and I'm I, I'm not keen on being in a lift for that long yeah. with it. but um, I think it's just talking and to the my my line manager and, and they they are sensible and supportive so it kind of sounds like for you at least Sarah we'll come to Gareth in a second that it's an extension of adjustments. You it are, is. It, it really, you know, I've, I've yeah. been talking to people in, in the, the, the um, my employer saying this is this is a new sort of adjustment you need to, to make for people. It is a workplace adjustment for for people like myself. Yeah. And Gareth, you were saying earlier that because of the situation, you, you know, comedian and actor and so on, you're being almost pushed into the film theatre side more than the comedy circuit side because of the safety but you're also saying that there's a moral dimension for you or an ethical one about the way comedy clubs it's just it's just a weird one in that you know I I Sarah mentioned earlier sort of being people who were better prepared in a in a way for this to happen so I think when you have a disability or vulnerable a vulnerability or a chronic illness you are used to your life stopping on a dime for periods of time. So you develop a, an adaptability and resistance, which I have or had. So my career has been stopped countless times, gigging, then I've got to cancel my gigs, maybe in cancelling my gigs, I've burnt a bridge with that promoter because I'm not reliable. So it's it's always been hard. And I think during the pandemic, when my colleagues experienced that same hardship 
and I saw them take it really hard, some of them psychologically. I felt briefly like even though it was terrible, they were going through it like, oh, wow, we're all in this. We're actually in this together. They actually get it. They actually understand my experience. And then as the barriers started coming back down, they went, oh, I don't give a shit anyway. So I'm back to work, right? Because I'm fine. So I got, I just got to get out and gig loads because I don't care because uh, I need to make up for the money I lost. So I'm, I'm pushing it harder than I am. So I just, just have found myself in kind of falling out of love with, with something I've loved doing and seeing for myself, I mean, to be fair, I've had a greater success in a shorter space of time as an actor than as a stand-up, I would say. So it's it's still a sensible choice to go, well, maybe, you know, push in there. And, you know, voiceover, same thing. That's something I can do from home. So it's more looking at things that I can either do at home or do solo projects like Arts Council theatre-based projects but not looking particularly at the moment like I really want to join the circuit again. Um, Sarah, you suggested this as an idea, and we are grateful, uh, and we've had a great response. Now, was there a, a single issue behind that? Was there something that you said? Is it just that you think people should be talking about this more, or is there something that's sort of rattling around your head that you wanted to express? I think it's just because we are, by very nature, invisible. It's not like you take immunosuppressants and suddenly you start you know, glowing pink. Because I, I want people to, you know, you have, you see people in the park sometimes and they're, 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 they're walking their dog and the dog's got like a special coloured like lead or a little, little jacket on, which says, please give me space because the, you know, the dog's a bit bitey or anxious. And I kind of feel like I need a little jacket which says, please give me space because I am a bit bitey and anxious about you being too close to me. Um, but I think, I think it's because it's this, I feel like people like myself and Gareth, we, we have, we're going to have to retreat again from society. But I guess it's more about just making me, other people, more visible in the hope that people respond to that in the same way as the guy did on the train, you know, positively with understanding and compassion. I think you make a, a, a huge point. I, I want to even narrow it down. One of the people we're going to hear from later on, Jen, mentions in the US, all the guidance ignored people who were immunosuppressed. It, the guidance was just for everybody else. Is that the same for you too? So when the government's mm. guiding this, they don't mention enough about the effect on you? Yeah, I mean, I, mean, I don't know about Gareth, but my goodness, was Matt Hancock writing to me a lot. I was getting like a letter a week from signed Matt, all about your your clinically, you should be shielding, you should be shielding, you should be shielding. So I got emails, texts, you know, multiple times from the government, like personal advice. Um, but in the sort of general, the general, you know, the briefings that we see on telly or in the more, I, I don't see any mention of it. And it's to my my employer's credit that they recently put out a statement about returning to the office and had a whole separate section for people who are immunocompromised. So they absolutely called it out right from the, the beginning. I don't think we can kid ourselves on where Tory policies were going and have been going for a number of years. Uh, they were going to go with eugenics here. They what they talked about it in even the way they talked about Boris surviving COVID. He was a fighter. He was a survivor. He was a strong man who fought. 
you know, that that kind of sullies anyone that passed away as just, well, they're pathetic, they didn't really make an effort. Um, they were looking at the Swedish model, and I noticed, and I, and I can't have been alone on this, but I really feel like I noticed there was a two-week period before the first lockdown where he stopped mentioning disabled and vulnerable and just kind of mentioned the elderly. There was a little bit of a, oh, I'm just going to inadvertently forget. And the elderly, not that I want anyone old to die, but we all go, oh, well, they are on, you know, they're closer to the pathway. That's, that's what we think in our heads. You know, that's part of what you think. And that's, and I feel like they tried to fob off the rest of the public in forgetting about vulnerable and disabled people. And I think that's mm. been the case throughout the pandemic, that, that they are not talking about it. And we know that people died in care homes, vulnerable people died in care homes. We know that they sent people back without testing them. I think those are choices that you can't make by accident. Like, I think they're really awful choices but it seems uncanny that everyone forgot, every hospital forgot when they sent people back. Yeah. I was going to say, I have felt a little bit like I could be, and people like me could be, collateral damage. Yeah. So um, for, the, for the, the sake of the majority, if we lose this minority of people who may or may not be taxpayers, but, you know, a lot of us are. Um, it, it was it was all it was fair game, and that's because of the narrative that the society and the government have about disabled people being less than mm. and other. And I'm I'm very sick of that. Um, stay with us, listener. At the end, when I, I just there's a couple of minutes because there's this phrase where people go, "Oh, someone died of COVID." They go, oh, "Do they have something?" As though once you've said that, they well, there you go. And it's mm. horrific. I, I hate the whole concept of that because it's, it, Sully is a brilliant word. It devalues. And I remember having debates with what I thought were very liberal, open-minded friends in the very early days who just, there was this whole side to them. It was immensely selfish. And okay. I then go, well, hang on. They've got kids. They're not getting any money. They're terrified. They slip through the crack mm. and that does make you selfish. And I can kind of get where they're coming from, but it was, it was a no win place. And I totally understand that there are there are people in this country who you know have you have to work you don't have the sort of um, you don't have the same resources to sort of fall back on. I absolutely get it, and I think, um, but that's not the fault of the of the of people with disability. That's the fault of like the government that not are not giving these people a safety net so that they can make choices for themselves to self isolate. And it's a terrible situation to put people in. One of the thoughts that runs through my head is that both of you are. Pursuing careers in, in, you know, in quotes, sort of middle class, well educated people and so on. What about an immune of suppressed individual in, I don't know, the 13th floor of a council flat with four kids? And you, do you know what I mean? I wonder mm -hmm. what life is like for them because you're describing horrific situations that you're having to manage. And I wonder what, and we know there are a lot of people in those environments and those situations who are really struggling. Perhaps we could spend the, what time we have left thinking about what, what we could do that would make a real difference to both of you. And in some ways, you've commented along the way about what some of those things might be. But it might be a good idea now to kind of come up with your three-point sort of wish list. If we could change these three things, it would make a difference to those of you managing these very complex issues, as well as, I think, Sarah, your point, 
the general population of disabled people who also feel very, very worried about what's going on around them with COVID and stuff. Who wants to start? What would be your three? Uh, I can offer a few. I don't know if it's exactly three or what. Um, first of all, I would collect all of the money defrauded from the government in the PPE scandal, plus all of the tax owed from people in higher positions than the average working class person. And I would commit now that all of that money, when we find it, will go on the new extreme cost to mental health of the nation. And so we're just going to invest this money in therapies. We're not, we're not going to talk about doing anything else with it because we were prepared to lose it because we didn't care about getting it back. So now we know what we're going to do with it. Um, I will... It's a great start, Gareth. <laughs> <laughs> you set the bar Thanks. very I'm very, I'm very, very angry. He's on my revolutionary side. Yeah, it's a, it's a, like anger it. is a good motivator. I, I think also I would ask that if we get to a level under which the government's going to write to me a letter that says we would suggest but don't want to commit to saying that you should lock yourself up, I would say, then if you want to say for the good, you know, for the good of society, you need to lock this small group away for a period of time, compensate this small group in some way, whether that be access to services while we're shielding, uh, income while we're shielding, commitment to not lose your job from your employer while we're shielding. There were so many people that wanted to throw us away and lock, you know, lock, lock the key away that I feel like, okay, if, if we get really hit hard and you feel next time you can't lock the country down, then if you want us to make that sacrifice again, because really we have no choice because we're vulnerable, then, then look after us because you'll actually be saving money. Like the economy will keep going for a period. You'll be okay. So actually you could support us more because we're helping you. Like that's what I felt like during the whole pandemic with shielding. We're helping you. The disabled and the vulnerable are helping you when they lock themselves away. And, and that's what I think a lot of, um, in, not invulnerable, but people who didn't, have, who didn't feel, who weren't the same. That's how I feel they felt. Um, and I, my number three um it would be nice to have some kind of vaccine passport system because my, my argument there is, and I understand everybody's fear of big brother and identity. I'm sorry. What world are you living in? If you're using a computer, if you've got a phone, we've got our ID system is in place. Let's not kid ourselves that suddenly actually having to have an ID card would mean that we now have like identity politics. We've already got it. So that's, that's where I'm at. Thank you, Gareth. Um, uh, and I, I liked your bit about we were helping because that, the whole point of the full lockdown was to stop all that, or many things, but to stop the beds being caught up in the NHS. Um, and if you're saying we've got to carry on doing that to stop it, then where's that sort of balance? Sarah, you alluded to one of yours, which was testing, testing, testing. Mm. Is, that, is that your number one? Is there other? Yeah, so I might come across as a very level-headed person. But I'm absolutely furious. I'm, I'm a seething ball of anger inside about all of this. Um, so, yes, I think testing should continue to be available for free if people choose to test. 
I'm I'm not a person who advocates that everyone should have a vaccine because I believe in your body autonomy and you can choose what's right for you. But yeah, testing is something that is, I mean, it's a it's a bit icky. It's just so simple and can really help protect a lot of people. I also say that I would like to take some of the money that has been squandered, misspent, and you and fund science because science has saved us with this. Um, I don't believe in many things, but I believe in I believe in Professor Whitty and Jonathan Van Tam. And this will happen again. Pandemics, pandemic X is coming. It will, it's coming because of the way the the way the world is, that we are putting pressure on natural resources and diseases will cross over from pathogen, you know, innocent fairy creature A to innocent fairy creature B to human. And that, that will happen. And we need to do deeply invest in horizon scanning for all of this to see what is next. And I take comfort from the fact that there are brilliant people out there like Professor Sarah Gilbert who got on it and within days had sequenced, you know, put, put together her design for the for the for the um, AstraZeneca vaccine. And we really need to make sure, given the, the 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 shock that education has had, that we are funding those new scientists that are going to come up and help us fight the next one. I, I completely. I I I watched her Dimbleby lecture. One of the was it Dimbleby? I think she gave a lecture anyway about the work they were doing. What an impressive individual she is. Mm. But she said that um, we should treat science in this area like we do the army. We have an army that's invested in hugely just in case there's a war. So we should be investing the same sums in science just in case something like this happens. That was one of her lines. I've always remembered. Mm. I thought that is such a good way of explaining it. But interestingly, neither of you said we want a cure for MS or we want a cure for Crohn's disease. Mm. What you're saying is we want to get this bloody yeah. science right so that we can live open and free. I mean, MS is an important part of my identity. Exactly. It's exactly. Uh, And I could ask for that. It still doesn't guarantee I won't be on a ventilator because COVID takes no prisoners, really. Yeah. It, it's got no rhyme or reason to it. Yeah. Well, we are sadly very close to the end of the time we have but um Simon was there anything you wanted to say? no just to say thank you both for being so articulate uh and eloquent and amazingly brilliant ideas that you know this stuff you clearly thought about and um uh, it was really helpful and really useful I also am struck by your point Sarah that you're on a podcast so you're going to talk about it so people listen but deep down inside there's fury and there's um frustration and and I I think that is part of it, it it's yeah, so thank you for, anyway, I don't know what I'm saying. Thank you both. I think what we should do, the three, well, I don't know whether Simon wants to join us, but I'm quite happy to join Sarah and, and Gareth in uh, a scurrilous little plot where we sit in dark rooms and think about the revolution. <laughs> yes, <laughs> we get our Che Guevara T-shirts out and go for it. But we've but... got to do it online, and so there's no big crowds, that's all I'm saying. <laughs> Anyway, it's been an absolute pleasure. It really, it really has. Thank you. Thank you, Gareth. No worries, Sarah. And yeah, good to see you guys. You're listening to The Way We Roll with Simon Minty and Phil Friend. 
we have a, a, a listener's corner. We did a shout out for this show beforehand to say if you've got any thoughts or comments. We couldn't have everybody on the show, partly uh, where they live, but also timings and so on. We heard from three of you. Uh, uh, thank you so much. These, these people have recorded audio clips, uh, which we're going to play for you now. First up is Christina Clegg, uh, and she is explaining her situation. I'm immunosuppressed, and this means that my immune system doesn't work properly, and that's because of medication that I need to take. At the beginning of the pandemic, I was identified as clinically extremely vulnerable. I needed to shield. I don't see myself as vulnerable. I'm vulnerable to COVID. I was working as a primary teacher before the pandemic, so it's been a huge lifestyle change for me. Being a shielder means changing everything that you ever knew. It impacts all the family that you live with. At the beginning, beginning, there was a collective effort. Support slowly became available. You just found a new way to live. But as COVID restrictions were eased, anxiety crept in, and I realised that not much would change for me. Immunosuppressed people don't always mount a full immune response to the vaccine. This is really scary because I don't know how effective my vaccinations have been. I don't know whether I'm safe or not. The official shielding period ended last year. And the guidance that we received was vague and contradictory. On the one hand, it says that we can now get on with life. But on the other hand, it suggests that we might like to take up extra precautions. The HSE goes as far to say, as to say we should still be working from home. As restrictions ease and with less protections in place, how does my vulnerable status protect me or include me in a world that's returning to a new normal? My argument is that our risk is unclear and easing of plan B effectively means more isolation for me and nobody seems to be addressing it. I want society to know who we really are, to recognise our dilemma. We've all but been forgotten, viewed as a burden, and I'm starting to recognise a growing lack of tolerance in society for people who are viewed as unable to function, not normal, and this view is dangerous. We need recognition, a platform for discussion, to discuss how policy and education for the wider community can allow us to move forward. I'm starting off by writing to my MP and I urge others to do the same. So that was Christina um, sharing her thoughts on how her life's been affected. Now let's listen to Denise, who's uh, from America, and this is what she has to say. Hello, my name is Denise Reich. Thank you for having me on the show. I have a form of primary immune deficiency. It's a genetic condition. And the basic explanation is that it's easier for me to get infections. It's harder for me to shake them off. And they tend to do more damage than they would do to the average person. There are treatments. There's no cure. So even before the pandemic, I tried really hard not to get infections. And some of the precautionary measures like hand sanitizer and avoiding crowds and wearing masks are things that I did all along. The pandemic has magnified it a lot, though. I'm in California, and they've gone above and beyond the federal regulations at times to try to keep people safe. I think they're really trying. But other states, every state makes their own rules. So other states have responded really differently. And the federal response has been really inconsistent. They finally recommended surgical and 95 masks like last month. But countries like Germany and South Korea made those same recommendations a year ago. So we're a little behind the times in some respect. For me, the most positive thing has been the development of more virtual events. Even without the pandemic, there are a lot of reasons somebody might not be able to go to a concert or a social event in person. And when it's online, it allows a lot more people to participate and feel connected to their world. And I really hope that doesn't go away. 
the worst thing for me has been the isolation. My friends and family check in with me on email and phone all the time, but I haven't been able to see my family in person in over two years. They have health concerns. It's not safe for them to get on a plane any more than it's safe for me. I saw my best friend for my birthday, but that's the only friend that I've seen in two years. Every holiday is spent alone. That is very lonely. And there's really no way for it not to be lonely for me. Thank you, Denise. Um, I, I want to say a quick thank you to Beth Alderman. Um, we, we haven't managed to squeeze you in, Beth, and I'm really sorry, but thank you so much. And I hope the show has done credit to, to what you said to us. Um, and, and finally, uh, Jen Rissa, who is also in the USA and Virginia. Um, we've got uh, our lovely Trisha, who you've heard at the top of the show. She's reading uh, Jen's piece, which she sent in. And so we'll hear that now. I have cartilage hair hypoplasia, otherwise known as CHH, which is a form of dwarfism. In addition to short stature, those with CHH have varying levels of immune deficiency, and I seem to have an immune system by name only. Thus, my entire life has been spent avoiding germs, and having been through chemo, I'm well aware of the more stringent precautions. So when the pandemic first hit, and no one was touching anything, and everyone was cleaning everything, from light switches to door handles, I thought, finally, hallelujah, this is amazing. Thus, the majority of precautions were nothing new to me, minus the wearing of masks and being scared of touching mail. That was a new one. Life, as I knew it, completely altered as of March 2020. For the first time ever in my working life, I began to work from home. Social activities with my book group, colleagues, and friends and family completely ceased. As a true introvert, this delighted me, for I'd say, the first year. As an editor, working from home came naturally. My stress levels were the lowest they'd ever been, and my sleep improved 100%. However, as the pandemic went on, it became clear that a large swath of the U.S. population wasn't going to get vaccinated, and new variants continued to emerge so it's become increasingly difficult for me to keep a positive attitude about the current situation. With mask mandates long gone and the Omicron variant still raging where I live, I've essentially been in lockdown for over a month now, and two years into it, it's just beyond frustrating. For the past two years, I've only eaten out twice. I am sick of cooking, and I sincerely miss being with others, laughing, catching up with friends, seeing family, etc. My closest family and friends, colleagues, They've all been very cognizant of my increased susceptibility to COVID, and their care and concern around me has been incredibly heartwarming. However, a fair number of my close family fall into the anti-vaxxer camp, and this has created enormous issues, and I've not been able to see them for the past two years. From my personal experience in the U.S., yes, I have felt overlooked. The overwhelming majority of announcements made throughout the pandemic from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention have been blanket announcements over and over again, such as, if you're fully vaccinated, you'll be fine, which is factually incorrect for someone like me, because although I've had four vaccinations now, I have very little antibody reaction due to my basically non-existent immune system. It's incredibly frustrating and rather soul-depleting when mandate after mandate doesn't apply to you you really begin to feel forgotten, especially as I've been sheltering alone at home for the past two years, and the case count isn't getting any better where I live. As for the future, it's definitely a new normal, but having had cancer, this is new normal round two for me. I'm keeping a positive spin on what that entails. 
For instance, having a more flexible work schedule in terms of being able to work from home. And as for travel, which I did frequently for work before the pandemic, I think it just means doing things a little differently. I doubt there'll be a time in the future when I don't wear a mask on an airplane, regardless of how far out we are from the pandemic. When traveling, at least for the foreseeable future, I see myself heading for parks versus crowded indoor venues and being more careful in terms of eating inside and attending indoor events. And there's little doubt that I will be spraying down the hotel room from door handle to coffee machine to bathroom, and I'll likely just toss the remote out the window. As for the anti-vaxxers, or those who believe freedoms have been eroded, or that COVID isn't serious, in my mind, they're just a waste of space. In my country, it's all come down to this notion of, it's my right not to get vaccinated, or for the religious, God will protect me, which is fine, but I think God would prefer you use your God-given common sense. I just can't understand it. No one is saying it's their right to drive drunk here, or it's my personal freedom to run a red light. Both instances where you'd be putting others at risk. So I don't see spreading COVID any differently, because for someone like me, or anyone undergoing chemo, or those who have had an organ transplant, we're relying on the rest of you to protect us. It does make me worry for the future of all vaccines, as what's to say that a huge number of the global population won't take vaccines after this? And I can't help but wonder what that means in terms of what's coming next. We've been able to eradicate so many horrible diseases, but I do wonder if that's a thing of the past. If I could have one wish, assuming COVID stays, it would be for vaccine mandates. But as I know that won't happen, at least where I live, then I hope they soon have medicines widely available for the immunocompromised should we get COVID in the future, as I really do not want to stay home for the next two years. Okay, so um, a, a bit different, the listeners' corner this week, because they were talking to us, which is lovely. And can I just say to all of you listening, um, if you want to contribute in that way, I send us a very short um, couple of minutes worth on your phone or whatever, please do uh, send it through to us at our email address, which is mintyandfriend at gmail.com. Um, and thank you, uh, the four of you who contacted this. I'm, I was struck by the, there's some commonality as well as Gareth and, and Sarah in this. Don't forget us, uh, still include us. Yes, there's been some good change um, and the things like the testing, which is critical, but there's clearly differences in the US and the UK and around the world as well. Yeah, and I think just reflecting back on something, Simon, you were talking about and came out from uh, Gareth and uh, Sarah too, was this idea that people who are vulnerable um, because they have other conditions uh, would have died anyway kind of thing. Um, we know that's completely rubbish because uh, many people in hospitals, for example, were in there for routine operations or whatever it was, and then they got COVID and that did for them. You press my button, right? Here we go. Uh, it's, so someone says, oh, so-and-so died from COVID. And people go, oh, did they have something already, though? It's this immediate dismissal as though this was... There's a really insidious piece that came up, I suppose, on Twitter. And someone asked for a freedom of information request from the Office of National Statistics asking for, inverted commas, true death toll of COVID. The argument being they had that was, um, if you already had something 
that was different. 150, 160,000 people had died from COVID had something else. But those who had nothing is about 17,000. Uh, the concept that because you had something else, therefore, it's going to be horribly flippant. It's something you had coming. This is nonsense. Um, a third of the adult population have got hypertension, high blood pressure. A third are obese. Uh, I, I read some stuff about from Colin Angus, who's at Sheffield Uni working in health inequalities. He says this concept is nonsense. It's disgusting. Um, if you're past 50, you've probably got a long term health condition. If you're 70, you're extremely lucky if you haven't. And it's something like 99.9% uh, .9 of people who uh, went into hospital and then died of COVID, they were living independent lives. About 9% had some sort of support. So with tiny percentages here, uh, it, it, it bugs me that it's almost, uh, it devalues people. It, it, and you can have a condition that wasn't going to kill you. You were living your life. COVID came along, tipped you over, and that killed you. It's been uh, a really interesting show, and I'm, I'm glad we've, I hope that we've helped air something for people and that, that you've got perhaps a different view on what's going on in our country. Well, and as Sarah and a few of the listeners said, not to forget people. As always, if you want to contact us, you can contact us by uh, email, which is uh, mintiumfriend at gmail.com or... We are all over social media, um, whether they're our socials, so LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Our Instagram account has been very well. Good all to right. see you, Simon, and thank you, everybody, for listening. Take care, everybody. See you next time. This is The Way We Roll, presented by Simon Minty and Phil Friend. You can email us at mintyandfriend at gmail.com or just search for Minty and Friend on social media. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn.